How many of you um, have ever gotten so excited, so hyped, so amped for something, only to finally experience it, say to yourself, well, that sucked? Okay. Um, Let me ask you a question. How, How many of you are either from Atlanta or really like Atlanta? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm about to offend you. All right. So, I've always had this uh, love-hate relationship with the city of Atlanta because as a child, uh, I gravitated towards the Atlanta Braves. Uh, I loved sports. I loved baseball. I actually got a picture of my favorite baseball player growing up, David Justice. Um, Matter of fact, I love this guy so much, my mom had a birthday cake made of this baseball card right here. And I remember, I remember us, um, I remember us like eating the birthday cake and we only could eat the edges. Like we couldn't touch David's face, all right, or his bat or anything like that. Because here was the plan. We were going to take that cake to a Braves baseball game. We were going to bring it and deliver it to David Justice. And then he and I were going to be best friends. That was the narrative in my 11-year-old mind. So we somehow... uh, tried to saran wrap as best possible to put the toothpicks in it to make sure nothing like could damage David's face. And um, I'm speaking as if we're friends, but the story is tragic. We're not. And so we take the cake to Atlanta and uh, we go up to a security guard and uh, you got this little Middle Eastern kid and this really white woman and they're like, we got some food for David Justice, wink, wink. He's really going to want this. And the guard's like, uh, okay. And he took it. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, he's going to take it down to his locker room. And like, David's going to play this great game. He's going to hit a home run and win the game because I'm there that day. And, uh, and then afterwards, he's going to invite me to the locker room. And I'm going to get to meet him and get autographs and meet all the Braves. It's going to be amazing. And so we get done with the game and we go back down to that same security guard. And we're like, um, did you give David the cake? And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, and he just looked at us and then like just kind of walked away. And I was like, oh no, David didn't get the cake. And in my little 11 year old mind, like my world was falling apart. I had all these like expectations and ideals of what was going to happen. I was just so excited and then so let down. And at that moment, I made a vow of myself. I will forever hate the city of Atlanta. Until a couple weeks ago when I was back in Atlanta, I was thinking about this because I went to go do a wedding. Uh, Bill and Allison Rice, y'all give it up for Bill and Allison Rice, just got married. Yes, right there. <laughs> so uh, the Rice just got married, and so I, I had a, a day or two to myself and went back down to Atlanta, and I'm like, I'm going to redeem my experience in Atlanta. No more, Annalise, will it be a love-hate relationship. Well, I'm going to love this city. Well, I walked away still not loving it. So, there, I'm joking. Actually, I like it now. I had some good experiences. If you're ever there, General Muir's uh, is a Jewish delicatessen. Amazing. That's free. A plug for you, General Muir's. If you're listening, I'm sure you're not because you're Jewish. So, um, so it, it was, I had a really good time. It was really great. But as I was thinking about that and even this passage, you know, this morning we come to um, the end, technically, of the Beatitudes. Now, we, we have another sermon next week in the series, In the Path of Jesus, Part 1. But this morning, we come to another of the Beatitudes. And as, as one commentator put it, that when you are looking at this passage and you get to this point, this build, the climax is almost anticlimactic. 
Like you're waiting for this huge, amazing crescendo from Jesus, and you get to it, and you can't help but kind of look and go, is that it? Like th- this, is, this is the path, this is what it means to, to walk with you? And so this morning, I want us to focus on two verses in particular, verses 11 and verses 12. And we have a graphic that we'll use from time to time. That there's two halves to, this, to, these, to these last two verses, right? You got the first half that's saying, blessed are you. And then it says on this other half we'll cover, um, rejoice and be glad. And with these two parts, there are underlying questions for, for each. And the questions for the first half, the question is this, that it's going to cost us something, Jesus is telling us. Like, it's going to cost you something if you're going to walk this path with me. Yeah, you're going to be blessed, but it's going to cost you something. But then there's another half to it. You're going to get something out of it. So here's our questions. What does it cost us, and what do we get out of this? Like, what does it cost us, and what do we get out of it? Now, the verse here is, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, up to this moment, Jesus is talking in third person the whole time. And you're wondering who he could be talking to throughout. Like, he's saying, like, third person plural, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. You're almost kind of going to be looking around going, so who in here, okay, we can tell who's poor, okay, maybe they're sad, not really sure, like, okay, maybe that's a lowly person, but you're always kind of wondering, is he, is he talking about me? Is he talking about me? But then notice something that's in these two verses, what appears time and time again? You. Blessed are you. Like, six times Jesus is using the word you. So he moves from third-person plural to second-person plural. It's you all, it's y'all. And he's trying to build something here because he's saying, okay, so blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who are sad, blessed are those who are lowly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then he's almost like, you almost could like see him up there as a play, like there's a play happening. It's theater almost. And then at the very end, Jesus breaks the fourth wall and looks right at you. And he says, now blessed are you. Blessed are you here in front of me. You almost could see it in his disciples' faces that he's looking at this crowd. And he's saying now that you all, you here that are here to follow me, pay attention. Listen up. Because I'm going to be talking to you directly. And he's saying to them, fortunate are you. Now, this word makarios, this is, is a word that we impact the first couple of weeks in this series. Makarios, this word blessing, that it's not just like, I'm blessed in the name of Jesus. I'm blessed in the city, and I'm blessed when I leave the city, and the Lord's on my… Yeah, yeah, that's not it. That sounds so fake. What he's trying to say to them is, fortunate are you. Like, I am with you, Jesus is saying, and God is on your side. For nothing that you do, simply for how you're living, for who you are. It's very important that we understand that, that he's trying to say to these people, if you're poor, you've always been on the low end of the totem pole. If you're sad, people are always trying to avoid you. If you're lowly in heart, people don't want to be your friends. 
But now he's saying, but guess what? Your whole life has been leading up to this point where you thought you were unfortunate, but now you are fortunate. And then when he finally gets to us, we're going, great, so we're fortunate how? And he says three things. You're fortunate because people will revile you. You're fortunate because people will persecute you and ostracize you. And you're fortunate because people will slander you. You know, this idea of revile is uh, in, 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 in the Aramaic and in the Greek, what he's saying is it's the, they're casting, it's casting of teeth. We're like, I never used that phrase before, casting of teeth. It's like they're talking underneath their breath about you. It's like the thoughts that go in their head and the things they kind of let out sideways. It's like people who get around you and they thank you to your face. When they walk away, they're thankless. And they talk about a person that they ran into on Facebook. And you read it and you're like, yeah, that's me. Blessed are you, fortunate are you when people revile you. He goes, fortunate are you when people persecute you. This idea of persecution is, is that you're left out. The teams were chosen and you were intentionally left off because of who you are and your makeup, because of the color of your skin, because of how you look, because of where you came from, persecution, that you're pressed on. He says, fortunate are you. And then he says, fortunate are you when people slander you, when people actually cast shadow on your character because of me. Now, all of us at one point in time have maybe experienced these things, being reviled, being persecuted, left out maybe being slandered. I was thinking about it. I've had a few. As they say in Jersey Shore, I've had a couple haters, all right? A couple haters. That means a few people who didn't like me. I remember the first time I came across this, I was about 22, 23, and um, I was, uh, I Googled my name. <laughs> Don't you judge me, all right? Because I know you've done it as well. So I Googled my name. And uh, I came across um, somebody talking about a Robin Abadie, and they, you listen, when you talk about a, there are probably like two of us in this world, all right? And the other one's a woman, okay? So there's like two Robin Abadies in this world. You're not going to spell it R-O-B-B-Y-N in the same way in the last name and not be talking about me. So all of a sudden, I see this blog entry about a Robin Abadie, and I'm like, interesting. And I click on it, I start reading. And this person is slandering me. I mean, they revile me. I mean, they hate me. Basically, um, it was, I'm not going to say who, a very, in the 90s, famous Christian singer, his daughters went on a mission trip that I led, all right? And um, if, if you think I'm intense and offensive now, boy, you should have known me in my early 20s, all right? Like, I used to make people get up in the morning, read their Bibles, and then do uh, uh, 50 push-ups. No joke. And I wouldn't even do the push-ups. I just made them do push-ups for Jesus. Like that picture we had of Jesus push-upping a cross, like that was me because I owned that T-shirt at one point in time. So, like, I was making people doing push-ups, sit-ups, reading their Bibles, and then go out and, like, go care for the lepers uh, that we were ministering to in India. I mean, like, it was insane. And I thought, man, I'm doing a good job. This is how Jesus leads. That's what I thought. And so about a year later, I see this blog entry, and this person is a journalist at a school, a, a journalism major, and they're just writing about what a horrible leader I am. 
horrible leader I am. And I remember emailing them and saying, hey, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry about that. And, and they're really embarrassed. And, and I was like, oh, okay, so revile. Now, I deserved that though, right? Would you say that I deserved that? Whatever. <laughs> I remember another time uh, here in the city, here in Memphis, I preached a sermon series uh, at, a, at a, a church I was working at on the book of Revelation. And um, uh, it was one of those sermon series where it was packed out when it started, and then literally people would get up and leave as I was teaching because they didn't like that I wasn't presenting them a view of Revelation they were used to, all right? And I remember a, a, actually a, a pastor in the city, a well-known pastor in the city, uh, emailed me and called me, he called me up and made me come meet with him and to basically chasten me for uh, preaching what I was preaching and then mocking the other side. It was embarrassing. It was difficult. Um, but I probably also deserved it in some way. But then recently… I was just uh, looking up Christ City Church online because I, I was going to the website, and you know they have those Google reviews to the side, and usually it's like 4.5, like five stars, and all of a sudden it dipped down to like 3.5 or something, and I'm like, man, what did I do to tick off Tom? Like, I don't know. What was going on here? And so I click on there, and it was some person, uh, their name was Person, that was it, and some person and they said, um, let me see here, FFS, is there another, uh, is there a need for another crazy religious group? I'm not going to define FFS for you, all right? You go home and talk to your mom and dad about that. So, uh, it said like, FFS, is there another need for uh, another crazy religious group here in town? And I remember reading that going, who is this person? Literally, their name is Person. Who is this person? And like, I couldn't find them. And they were going throughout the whole city, like slandering every other church, giving them one stars and like locating it on a map. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's crazy. And then the thought hit me. What if he's right? You could throw a stone, a rock, and hit a church from here if you wanted to. There are more churches than gas stations in this city. That's a proven stat. I'm joking, but it's proven. There are so many religious groups here in town. And here's my question I was just wondering. Would the city of Memphis miss Christ City Church if she were gone? Because she almost disappeared seven months ago. And sometimes it's really good and important to take inventory of where you are and who you are and what's happening. And I couldn't help but ask the question to myself, like, if we disappeared, what would the city say? Would it simply say, well, that's okay, and there's another church down the road? Like, are we just another crazy religious group, and is that really needed? It's convicting. Because if, if the, the height of things we're worried about are Sundays and how many people show up and how much giving we had, yeah, we might be, just be taking up too much air. If the height of your experience when you show up here is that, well, they didn't play the song that I like, or Robin offended, well, Jamin offended me. Here's the thing. It's either me or Jamin that would offend you. It would never be Drew, right? Like, Drew can tell you you're going to hell, and you'd be like, thank you, Drew. That was so sweet of you. I'd tell you just to, like, like love your spouse more. They're like, I hate that guy. He's so mean and Iranian. 
But like if the worst that's happening for you is like you show up and you're offended by something somebody says, or, you know, I don't agree with their doctrine on this issue here, or I don't like how they handle that thing there. Maybe I'll go flying somewhere else. That might be what needs to happen. And we've had plenty of people that they need to be able to move on, and that's okay. It's not a mocking of that. But listen, friends, if that's all we're here for, why are we here? Goodness, is there not more for the church to be about than simply showing up on a Sunday, having a shot in the arm because we got to hear the gospel, and then we go home and nothing changes? And not just in your life, but in your world. And it seems to me when I read this, Jesus is trying to get across a point that if you are willing to live these ways that he's laying out, you'll find yourself fortunate, and so will those who run into you. You see, the Beatitudes actually are trying to do two things. One, they're fulfilling all the promises of what the law and the prophets were attempting to point Israel to. You read the Beatitudes, and they're nothing new. It's constantly coming out in the law. It's constantly coming out from the prophets. Like, it's the law of the prophets are trying to um, point people to live a certain way for Yahweh in this world, for Him to be a lighthouse for the nations to want to come to Him. That was always His plan. And yet we see in the exiles time and again, the condemnation on Israel wasn't that they didn't have personal holiness or they didn't like do all their prayers in quiet times. It's because they were wicked and didn't care for the needs of those in this world. That was their condemnation, their disobedience towards God. That's what Yahweh's concerned with time and time again because they didn't live out these essentials of this world that God has like embedded in the grain, in the, in the underbelly of it. Like this is how you were meant to live. You were meant to live in these ways. And they kept denying it time and again. You're meant to leave a portion of your field of grain for those who are poor and don't have their own fields. Like, you were meant to create space for the outsider, the sojourner, who is beaten down and oppressed. You're meant to fight for righteousness' sake. That's why Jewish people in the Old Testament kept losing their minds when all these pagans were, like, like brought in by prophets. They're like, no, 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 they didn't obey all the rules. They didn't check off all the boxes. And, and the prophets are like, you're missing the point. It's hiding in broad daylight for you. And the second point to these Beatitudes then, if that's the first half, the second point then is that it's now to give us a path to walk by. These Beatitudes are meant to be like the cheat codes to life with God. Because when we interact with the world in these ways, we find that we're relating to the humanity and the needs of those around us. And in turn, now we're exemplifying a tender God that wants to be with those people. Now, he's talking about these people who are already these ways. But then at the end, he goes, fortunate are you when you're persecuted for all these things for righteousness' sake, for my name's sake. See, people like Jamie preached about last week, people who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, they want those who are poor to be taken care of. And they want those who are sad to be comforted. And they want those who are lowly to, like, find a space that they belong to. 
Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake are those who want to fight for the needs of all those people that are listed here. And Jesus doesn't want any of us to miss it. Yeah, 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 third person, now you. Blessed are you, fortunate are you. Because when we, when we interact with the Beatitudes in these ways, we have a, I have a slide for you here. We are humbled before God and identify with the humble, the poor, and the outcast. We mourn with sincere repentance towards God and comfort those who mourn. We are surrendered to God, committing ourselves to following God's ways and making peace. We hunger and thirst for delivering community, restoring justice. We practice compassion in action, covenant faithfulness towards those in need. We seek God's will with holistic integrity in all that we are and do. We make peace with our enemies as God shows love to God's enemies. We are willing to suffer because of our loyalty to Jesus and justice. He goes, if if you want to get this, if you don't want to miss out on who I am, what I'm about, say you'll be fortunate, but fortunate are you who now do these things. And here's what he's trying to tell us. If you want to experience the makarios, the blessing of God, you have to get in line with what he's doing. Listen, you could go the rest of your life trying to have a personal piety and holiness, making sure that you kick all the bad habits and sins, and you'll still miss out on what God's about and what he's doing in this world. If your worldview of the gospel is narrowed down simply to you and the best life now for you, you're going to miss out on what God's all about and what Jesus came to do. You're going to find yourself experiencing maybe a lot of peace, but it's only going to be peace because you've isolated yourself and you'll be missing out on a lot of blessing, on a lot of being fortunate. You won't find comfort if you're not willing to live in the path of Jesus and we won't be blessed if we're not willing to be the church. This church will not be fortunate if we're not willing to walk in this path. I want you to hear me say this clearly. John Stott on this says, we see this person living these ways next to others out in the human community. His relationship with God does not cause him to withdraw from society, nor is he insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, he is in the thick of it, showing mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. He is transparently sincere in all his dealings and seeks to play a constructive role as a peacemaker. Yet he is not thankful for his efforts, but rather opposed, slandered, insulted and persecuted on account of the righteousness for which he stands and the Christ whom he is identified. Such is the man or woman who is blessed, that is, who has the approval of God and finds self-fulfillment as a human being. Look at that last line. Such is the person, the man or woman who is blessed, fortunate, who has the approval of God and finds fulfillment as a human being. The Beatitudes are trying to put both of our feet on the ground and out of the air, saying, you're a human being. 
You're meant to live with this human race. You're meant to see the needs of those around you. You're meant to interact with them. You're not meant to pass the buck. You're meant to be here and present. You're not simply meant to show up on a Sunday and have a great gathering and go home and do nothing about it. You're meant now to live this out. And you could choose not to. It won't make you this horrible, sinful person, but you will miss out. And this church will miss out. And this city will miss out. This church has been given a second chance to say that we are going to be about things that truly are going to bring as much transformation in the city as possible. And it doesn't mean that we weren't before, not saying that. But it does mean that we have to give less words and give more action. We have to give less like expectation and hope and then actually kind of just put both feet on the ground and say, I'm not going to avoid the poor person. I'm not going to avoid the really mournful person who's always sad and I don't want to feel my feelings and how much fear I have with them because they're so sad. We're not going to avoid the lowly person because that would like tarnish my reputation. We're not going to like... You know, so many times we can assume we're being persecuted, like on Facebook, right? Because we stand up for something on Facebook, and that's not wrong. But if all you do is stand up for something on Facebook, and you don't actually stand up for something more than just your words on Facebook, just stop. Because you're just tarnishing the name. Like you're creating a bigger chasm. Like, for example, if if you really um, want to fight for what is, what is racism in our country and fight against that and see that changed, then don't just blurb it out on Facebook and then condemn people who don't see you the way you see it. And then if you actually believe, which I do, that the greatest tragedy are the voiceless babies that are killed through abortion, don't spend all your time persecuting somebody who doesn't have your views spend your time being more pro-minded on your views. Somebody asked me one time, they said, what's the difference between someone who is anti-abortion and pro-life? I said, nothing. They said, everything's different. One person standing in line with picket signs saying, you're going to hell for killing this baby. The other standing at the door, weeping, saying, I'm so sorry you're here, and I'm willing to go inside with you and be with you in this, or we can go to my house and talk more about it. One person's against, one person's for, you figure it out. One is simply just throwing words on a, on a sign and condemning, and one's actually putting both of their hands and both of their feet to work saying, I want to be here with you. I want to be a part of the solution at all possible. And you know what? You may not do what I'm wanting you to do, but I'm still going to be with you. And I'm not going to leave this thing because I'm for something, not against something. What if we were for things and not always against things? What if we want to stand up for things and not simply condemn people who didn't see it our way? It ends up being an echo chamber, it spirals out of control, and then everybody has to question, what good is that religious crazy community over there? Would this city miss us if we were gone? Fortunate are you. Now this costs a lot, would you not agree? To live in these ways, it costs a lot. So yeah, because... There's a difference between being persecuted for simply you want to have strong opinions about something, but then being persecuted for being pro-minded and wanting to help see things changed. 
Very few of us, if any of us, have actually experienced being reviled, persecuted, and slandered for his namesake. Instead, we want to hole up and then cast our light mind grenades at others. So it costs us something. But there's also something we get out of it. Look back at the verse. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. What kind of person can rejoice and be glad in the midst of all this? That's what I was wondering. What kind of person? The Greek idea behind rejoice is actually the word thrive. Strange, right? Like, thriving are you. You'll be able to thrive. Rejoice and be glad. You're thriving when you live these ways for these reasons. But how do you even thrive when you're actually feeling and experiencing condemnation, being talked about, being looked at weird, saying, yeah, I'm not going to go that direction. I'm not going to interact with those things because I know I'm convinced and convicted by my Lord to go this direction. And somehow though we can thrive in the midst of a world that can look down on us, and not just the world outside, you know, all the pagans and sinners. No. The people who are, getting per- who are persecuting the most in Jesus' time are religious leaders. They're the ones that are saying things like, no, 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 you can't go that direction. No, it is about the glory of God and preaching it clearly on a Sunday and making sure the churches are filled. No, 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 you can't go a different direction on that. You can't dumb that down. You can't water that down to be about other things. Let me tell you something. If this church is willing to go this direction, we're not going to fit in a lot of places. And I'm not saying that like, oh, great, we get to be really hipster church now. I'm saying, like, you're just not going to be able to, like, connect with some people. You're going to find yourself not be able to connect with some conversations. And it doesn't make any of those people who are doing those things wrong. I believe that heaven is, like I said before, it's unfortunate that the name Pharisee, the term Pharisee, has been poo-pooed on so many times in the church. These people were living to the best of their ability with what they had to work with. I believe you're going to meet them one day in the presence of God, so many of them. But gosh, we're missing out if that's it. Simply trying to keep all the rules, put up all the fences, and make sure people hit all the right doctrines as they come through the check gate. And Jesus is saying there's a way to thrive in this world. There's a way to thrive. Matter of fact, Eugene Peterson, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, there's a famous verse that a lot of you would know without even reading it. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. But the way Eugene Peterson unpacks it in the message, he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And your bulletin's philosopher and theologian, Peter Rollins, said this, for in the figure of Christ, we are confronted with an atomic event that does not destroy the world, but rather obliterates the way in which we exist within the world. In concrete terms, this means that the darkness and dissatisfaction that make their presence felt in our lives are not finally answered by certainty and satisfaction, but are rather stripped of their weight and robbed of their sting. 
To walk down a path with Jesus is to have more questions than answers is to have more smeared areas than straight lines. To walk with Jesus down this path means you're going to be put in uncomfortable situations. You're going to be creating more and more space for people to belong before they believe. It's going to feel awkward and clunkily, clunky. You're going to want to get away from it. Many of us perhaps showed up here at this church because there were very clear lines and distinctions on how we approach X, Y, and Z things. And that's fine, but that's not what's going to be able to keep you here. Because at the end of the day, we're having to create space for people. We're having to go out and say, yeah, like, so I know you're not like checkpoint evangelical, believe these five points here. I get that. That's okay. I don't really know what all that's saying anyway. Like, I don't get it all. I act like I do, but I don't. Try to read all the right books. I still don't get it. How about this? I'm a human, you're a human. And you're in need and I'm in need. So how about we break bread together? Matter of fact, why don't we come break bread together on Sunday mornings? Literally break bread together Sunday mornings. That's creating space. That's uncomfortable. But Jesus says you can thrive in this. Because somehow, some way, you're fortunate because he is with you and God is on your side. It's a big ask, I know. But he says, rejoice and be glad. And then he goes on to say, when you do this, your reward is great in heaven. Now, we have, to, we have to unpack this just a little bit. Your reward is great in heaven. If you were a good Jewish person when Jesus said this, you immediately would be taken back to Genesis chapter 15. Because in Genesis 15, we have Abraham, who's been called from his pagan background and pagan land by God, by Yahweh, said to go, and I'll tell you when to stop. Just go, because I'm going to bless you. I know you want kids. And Abraham's like, okay, if I follow you, you'll give me a child. And God's like, oh, man, I got something bigger than just a child. So Abraham follows him. But along the way, because the world is so convinced that the way that you get peace is through fighting, which is so much of the story in the Old Testament. If you get stronger than another person vis-a-vis and you conquer them, then you will have peace, which the cross was completely meant to obliterate that concept, and yet how sick and ironic that we still walk with those ways today. If I just conquer you, then I'll get peace and I'll have protection. So Abraham's in the midst of this world where he's still having to fight for his own safety, for those he loves. And he still hasn't been blessed with a child. At the beginning of chapter 15, you can almost see him dragging his sword, blood on his face, walking up to God, saying, I thought, I thought you were going to be with me. And then God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward is great. Now, Abraham's going, okay, what do you mean with that? And God's saying, listen, your reward is not about one child. Your reward is about many children. Your reward's about nations. Because I'm not just interested in saving you, Abraham, and your family. I'm after the world. I got a plan, you see. And it all was disrupted in Genesis 3. But I'm after something. And I need you to be a part of it. I have a mission, 
And the mission isn't just to go conquer. The mission is to love. The mission is to be with others in need. The mission is for you to be a real human being with other human beings and help meet them in their needs. So along the way, God gives laws and he gives commandments, not to keep you within the box and all the straight lines, but to say, listen, this is what it means for you to interact with me. Go care for people out there. And Israel keeps missing it time and again. See, your reward will be great. And he goes, great in heaven. Now, a good Jewish person living in the first century didn't have a concept of going to the heavens one day. That is an enlightened Western view that was brought out about 300 years ago. If that's the view you want, I'm not, I'm not going to shame you for it, but that's not the original biblical understanding. Jewish people didn't have an idea that they'd get out of this world one day. Their understanding was, is that God's after this world. He created it. He's not done with it. He's going to restore it, and we're a part of it. That's why we hunger and thirst for righteousness and for Messiah to show up and right all that's wrong. That was their concept. That was their understanding. So when Jesus is saying, great is your reward in heaven, he's not like, you're going to stockpile jewels and diamonds and rubies in your own little mansion one day. It's going to be amazing. And you kind of get to live separate from other people. Well, I got more jewels than you. You didn't do enough, did you? Well, too bad. What Jesus is saying, you see, for a Jewish person, heaven meant where God was, like the presence of God. So what he's saying is, great is your reward with God. Like, you're building for something greater than yourself. And listen, God has got your back. Have you ever had a person say to you, like, I got you? I got you. Like, you're with a friend, and like, you're supposed to pay for a meal. You guys go in halfsies, and like, you reach for your wallet, and you're like, oh, forgot my cash. Like, I do this regularly, not on purpose, but it happens. Ah, I forgot my wallet. And then, a good friend says to you, I got you. I got you. Everybody needs an I got you in their life, an I got you person. It's really sad a lot of us don't. You're either needing that person or you are that person. But here's what God is saying to you. Hey, I, I know you're going to be poor in this process, and I know you're going to suffer in this process, and I know that you're going to actually ask a lot of questions and wondering where am I in this process, and I know you're going to suffer in this process, and I know you're going to be persecuted in this process, but I want you to know something. I got you. I, I got you. Great is your reward in heaven. I got you. N.T. Wright, to this, he goes, Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. If you're willing to go for righteousness, righteousness for his namesake, he's got you. And if not, 
like, you're still going to be with him, and he's not going to turn his back on you, but you're going to be missing out. Like, all I want to say is what Jesus said. I don't want to put words there, but also I don't want to dull it down and water it down. It is what it is. He goes, if you wanted to live these ways, you'll be fortunate. You'll be able to rejoice and be glad. Your reward will be great. I got you. If not, I don't know what to tell you. I do know this will happen, though, if we don't. Is there another need for another crazy religious group in the city? Because they'd be better off gone. What will it take for us to be willing to suffer for the name of Christ? To stand in the gap with those who are poor and mourning and find no peace. I recently came across this story of a, of a priest in the 19th century named Father Damien. I have a picture of Father Damien. A Belgium Roman Catholic priest who at the age of 24 was called to go minister to the island of Molokai in Hawaii, a small island. Now, what makes this interesting is this island was an island of outcasts, of those who had leprosy. We have a picture here of Father Damien, 24, 25 years old in this picture. For the next 16 years, Father Damien would spend his time every Sunday getting up welcoming his congregation, saying, my fellow believers, my fellow believers. He would spend his Monday through Saturdays building roads and hospitals and schools with his own hands. This man invested in the lives of these lepers, this leper colony, this island of lepers, these outcasts. But something sad happened 16 years into his pastoring of this parish. On a Sunday morning before church, he was boiling some water, and he realized that he had poured scalding water on his hands but didn't feel it. He realized that that moment he had now become a leper. Father Damien gets up that morning, stands before his congregation. Sunday after Sunday had said, my fellow believers, and this Sunday he stood up and said, my fellow lepers. There's a picture here of him. You can see in his hands the leprosy. He's probably not even 40 years old in this picture. Isn't that crazy? His body worn and tattered. He would die three years later. He would spend 19 years with these people. And he was willing to love them and be with them in such a way that he would even take on literally, literally their disease. Those who were poor and those who were sad and those who were lowly and those who had no peace and those who questioned if they really belonged to this world, those who literally were persecuted and put out on an island you see him on his deathbed here, his last few breaths, here's what he had to say. I feel no disgust when I hear the confessions of those near their end, 
whose wounds are full of maggots. This may give you some idea of my daily work. Picture to yourself a collection of huts with 800 lepers. No doctor. In fact, as there is no cure, there seems no place for a doctor's skill. I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. Uh, just a few years ago, Father Damien became um, a saint. The Roman Catholic Church made him a saint. And um, of course, there was a fight over who would get his body, because he's originally from Belgium, and so they wanted to have their saint brought back. So they divided his body up. Part of his body was taken back to Belgium, and part of it was left there in Malachi. You know what was left in Malachi for his burial? His hands. You know, as I was writing this sermon and thinking about all this, it just hit me how afraid I was. Because I don't want to live this way. I want safety. Like, I want my space. But gosh, when you read Jesus and you're finally willing to say, like, okay. And you start doing inventory, you got to go, maybe things have to be different. And I want you to hear me say this. Um, so many times Sundays have been used for like, here are all the changes we're going to make. And then you wait for it to change and it doesn't change. And just adds to and compounds to the fact that once again, it's just the church talking about things on a Sunday. I'm not here to make promises. I'm just here to ask questions. Like, do we want to be different? Like, do we want our, our hands buried in the city? And here's the thing. It starts with, from the top down, I'm not talking to you first. It starts with elders and deacons and store group leaders. But I want you to know, this is so many ways what we're trying to go towards. Like, there's a... There's two parts to Christ City's story. There's a past and there's a future. The past has been that we are a, we are a um, Sunday preaching, hip, well-branded church, and that is not a wrong thing. But gosh, I want more. Like the future of Christ City has got to be these Beatitudes, right? Like I think... And I think it has to be not just making promises, but like just being, okay, God, turn this church into what you want. Do with it what you want. If you want to dwindle us down, dwindle us down. If you want to blow us up, blow us up. If you want to keep us here, if you want to take us somewhere else in the city, just, just gosh, like we want to be in your path. We want to walk in your path. And that's my question I have for us, like, do you not they, do, do you want to walk in the path of Jesus?
because it's going to cost a lot. But great is your reward. Let's pray. Father, please be with us now as we go into communion. We have so far only had eight weeks of our (laughs) ten months of talking about you, and goodness gracious, is it a lot. We're going to need help. But I'm so grateful to know that fortunate are you when you get in line with what I'm doing. Fortunate are you, Christ City Church, when you get in line with what He's doing. May we be a church that gets in line with what you're doing. God, we don't want to miss out. We don't want to spend our time on things that are just about our own selves and our own security or checking off all of our boxes. We just want more. We don't want to be another just crazy, unneeded religious group. We want to be the kind of church that if we were gone, this city would say, where do those people go? So, Father, we surrender ourselves to you. That's the best we can do right now and ask you to make us and mold us. Amen.